extra loud to keep you awake, okay? Not really, that's not what I'm going to do, but I am so glad you're here. It's great seeing those pictures from the family retreat and great seeing all these kids come forward. This is a blessed congregation in so many ways, and we want to keep going forward, keep praising God, keep putting Him first. Last week, while many of you were gone to the family retreat, we talked about a new series that we've started, one that's called Walking Alongside King Jesus. Now, we talked about for several weeks about King Jesus, and we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount and those great things that were said in the book of Matthew in chapters 5 through 7, and now we're moving along, and we're, in my head at least, we're trying to imagine what it would be like to sit around the campfire with Jesus back 2,000 years ago and hear him teach and, and all at once he starts speaking and you're hearing these things from him and you're trying to figure out what it all means and you know it's important and deep or maybe you're walking along the road and Jesus is just teaching, he's just talking and you're listening as closely as you can as he walks or, or maybe he sees a blind man or he sees a beggar or someone and he stops and does something incredible like a miracle. And how incredible that would be to be there in the presence of Jesus. And so we're thinking about those things that Jesus said and Jesus taught. And this morning we are going to be looking as we kind of begin this series today at what I would say is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. Tim talked about during the Lord's Supper about some of the most comforting verses. Today let me tell you that I'm going to be talking about a passage that is extremely challenging. I said to someone told me after the first service, they said, well, that was, a, that was a big challenge this morning. I said, you should have lived with this all week because I've been thinking about this all week. And really, we should be thinking about this passage today every day of our lives because I mean this is one that Jesus is talking to us just as straight as he can talk to us. This is no, this is no sweet pillows around it he is going to tell us straight so this morning either on the screens or looking or or look in your bibles in luke chapter 14 in verses 25 through 27 it says large crowds were traveling with jesus and turning to them he said if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother wife and children brothers and sisters yes even their own life such a person cannot be my disciple and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Wow, I mean, that is, that's about as straight as you can put it, right? And you have all these people around Jesus, and that's what he begins with? You would think that, that you wouldn't do that, right? But that's what Jesus says. If you want to be my disciple, hate father and mother, brother and sister, spouse, yourself, whatever you can imagine, hate that and follow me, and carry your cross. As a matter of fact, later on he says, and carry your cross every day. Well, we can certainly say this about Jesus, and that is that Jesus is no huckster. Now, for those of you who try to guess what the fill-in-the-blank is each week, I know you didn't get that right, and I put huckster on purpose, okay? He is no huckster. Instead, what Jesus does is he, he doesn't hide the cost. He tells you right up front, what a huckster is, it's an old term, but it's a person who would try to, try to fool you somehow. They would tell you something and tell you the price, and later on you would find out the price was something else. 
When I was a little boy, I remember reading in the newspaper. My dad would always read the paper. And I remember reading that you could send off for this free camera. And this was before cell phones. And so I said, can I send off for it? And my dad said, yeah, I guess so. So I get the camera back, and it's a little cheap little thing. And it takes 36 photos. And I take a picture here and there of everything. Of course, you can't see the photos because you have to have the film developed. And so it was something like, and this was way back there, it was like 1995 to develop the film, plus $5 to send the camera in, and they would send you back another one. My dad said, we are not developing those pictures. You know, that's what a huckster does, makes you think it's one thing and it's something else, gets you to buy in, and then you realize, I've just given away my entire life. Jesus doesn't do that. The crowds come to Jesus. And Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother and your brother and your sister and your spouse and yourself, you can't be my disciple. Oh, and by the way, unless you carry your cross, you can't be my disciple. See, on this side of the death of Jesus, we imagine the cross and we think about, oh, being like Jesus. They don't know about Jesus dying on the cross yet because he hasn't died, right? But they do know it's a form of execution. And so Jesus is saying, unless you're willing to be executed for me, you cannot be my disciple. This is a tough saying. And I think it's important that we don't hide it, we don't move around it, but instead we understand what he is saying in this passage. Now I hope you understand, you may not, because this is, I've seen this on, I've, on, on Google before, of, of people listing this as a reason not to be a Christian because, a, because the Bible tells you to hate people. But here, in the way it's being used, hate has no ill will. That is not the intent for you to have ill will towards someone the way we typically use the word hate. This is being used in a different way than we normally would use that phrase. Matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount we studied, one of the things we talked about was loving our enemies. That Jesus said, love your enemies. He also went even beyond that and he said that, excuse me, that that anger and hatred are the equivalent of murder. So he's not telling you to hate people that same way. He's not telling you to hate your enemies. He's not telling you to hate your friends that way. He even says that a husband is to love their wives as they love themselves. And so that's not his idea of hate here, the way we sometimes take the word hate. Instead, he's saying that we hate other things that we'll talk about in just a moment. Things like hate what is evil. That is something we should hate. There's another thing that we should hate, so to speak, and that is hate the fact that I let things challenge my commitment to Jesus. Hate the fact that I don't love Jesus all the time more than I love other things. He said, well, you're the preacher, you know, you got this down. I don't have it down. I want to have it down. I'm trying to have it down. But if the reason I sin is because there are things that I sometimes love more than I love Jesus, which mainly is me. Because I do things for me, even when I know there's sin, even when I know they're against God or try not to think about God when I sin, because I love myself more. So don't think that we have all arrived here, because I don't think any of us have completely arrived at this, but we're all working at this. That's the point of the passage, that we are working to be like this, to be more and more in love with Jesus. So we, our commitment to Jesus is to be so much greater 
than it is to anything else that it's like hate. It means, oh, I love you so overwhelmingly. You've heard me say some of this before, but I want to share a little bit of it again, but not all in detail. But you've heard what I've told my daughters forever, and, and they're both grown now, but I've said, look, if your dad goes off the rails, if I go off the rails and I lose my faith in God and I become some kind of crazy man out in society and leave your mother and leave the church and do all kinds of things, do not follow me. Do not, if I do those things against God, don't you do things against God. You stay faithful to God. What I'm trying to teach when I, when I taught that to them was, you love God more than you love your dad. Don't, don't follow me and say, well, you know, I wanted to be a Christian, but now my dad's doing this stuff, so, you know. No, don't. Love God more than you love me. And what I want Barbara to do, to do is love God more than she loves me. That's what we all should want, that God is supreme, that he is above everything else. So obviously we love our spouses, but we do so through the lens of the love of God. We love our families, but we do so through the lens of, of the love of God. That God is first in everything. That God is not only first, but God is everything. That we put God first in all those things. You see, self-denial is the primary condition of discipleship. Oh, self-denial is a difficult thing, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's easy, you know, to give up things that aren't hard to give up, right? There are things we can give up. I remember, and I may have said this before, but I had a friend back in junior high, the first time I'd ever heard of Lent before, you know, people give up something for Lent, and I asked my friend what he was giving up, and he said, gum. I said, Gum? He said, yeah, I'm not going to chew it, you know, I'm not going to chew it for a month. Wow, that's really something. I said, do you chew gum now? No. Yeah, right? <laughs> Some things are not difficult to give up. I can give up peas and carrots like nobody's business. Matter of fact, I just realized I did. I did give up peas about, oh, at least 50 years ago. <laughs> Whenever my mom said I didn't have to eat them anymore. Yeah. But then there are other things that are much more difficult to give up. The things that gratify us, the things that make us feel good, those kind of things that maybe are against God, or maybe they're not so much against Him. Things that I justify are for God, but really they're for me. Those are the things that I'm to be denying myself of. So that I am more like Jesus, that I put Jesus first in everything I do, rather than putting myself first Rather than, than justifying what I want, I put Jesus first, or should be putting Jesus first. Now, I want you to see the context of this passage in Luke chapter 14 that we've looked at. Those first verses are the ones we just looked at, and I want you to see what comes right under it as he illustrates it. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation with the others while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, 
Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. This is strong teaching. This is not that little milly weak stuff. This is strong stuff he's saying. In the culture, probably what he's talking about is out in a vineyard, they would build a tower, and you could go up in the tower or have a watchman go up in the tower, and you could see if someone's trying to get in and steal your grapes or if there's a fox or whatever, a wild animal out there, and you could chew them off. And so you would build these towers, and as people walked along the, the path or along the road, they would see a tower in this field, a tower in that one, and on and on. And so if you start to build your tower and you're not able to build it all the way, people will say, why didn't they finish that? I wonder what happened to that guy. What was wrong with him? It makes me think of that house we've talked about before that is somewhere around Sanger, Texas. A 25,000 square foot house built, started, they started building in the 1980s. It is still, it still has nothing in it. Still has plywood on the windows. About every year or so, someone will say that they're going to do something with it. I saw last year it was going to be a wedding venue. I was by there a few weeks ago, or, or a few months ago. Still, nothing in it. Still, plywood on the windows. And every time we talk about, why is it like that? Why didn't someone move into that? I wonder what happened to the family. And if you go to the internet, you can find a thousand different guesses as to what happened, when I think really they just ran out of money. So in that culture, it was what was called a shame culture. And so in, incompletion would have, set, would have brought shame to the person. So what does this have to do with following Jesus? He says, if you're going to follow me, you need to be serious about it. This is not something you start and you stop. This is something you do, you go all the way. This is not something that you say, I think I'll be a Christian for a little while and then I'll move on. This is something you do for the rest of your life. Now the beautiful thing about grace is when you mess up and when you fall, Jesus will take you back and let you get started again right away. That's the beautiful part. But he's saying count the cost and think about what it is. Now, when you go to that other parable there, and he talks about the two kings, do you realize that Jesus as king has way more than, than king devil has? And so you would want to count the cost and know that you want to be on king Jesus' side. And so you don't want to be shamed. You don't want to be embarrassed. Count the cost and decide that Jesus is worth it. You know, there's a price to pay either way. Whichever path you choose, there will be a price to pay. And so sometimes we're so afraid of the price that we would pay if we decide to follow Jesus. Oh, well, you know, my family might say something about me. I may dishonor them somehow. Maybe I'd lose my job. Maybe people would, would act weird around me. Whatever it is we say, that's our price we're paying. I'd have to give up something, whatever it is. That's the price we're paying. But do realize that if you don't choose the way of Jesus, the other way has a price to pay as well. It might be soft for a while, but there's destruction at the very end of it. And so he says, don't, give, don't take that road. But I also want you to understand this, that not choosing is a choice. When I don't choose, I am making a choice because what Jesus says is follow which means movement, so it means he is walking, right? He is moving, and if I'm back here, 
back here on this side saying, well, I don't know. I'm not going to make a choice. I'm not going to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm not going to do. I'm just going to stay back here. Jesus is moving farther and farther and farther and farther away from you. It is an activity that he's doing. He is moving all along. Not choosing is a choice. You're choosing not to follow. That is not what he called us to be. He called us to follow and to go along with him. Now there is something in this passage that I, I don't know why I hadn't seen it as strongly as I saw it this time. I've seen it a hundred times, but this time as I studied it, studied it, it was like kind of a light went on with me in this little bit I'm going to share with you on this slide. He didn't say, give away your family. He didn't say, give away your riches. He didn't say, you know, give away your time. And some of you right now says, oh, wait, this could be exciting. You mean I don't have to give my money? Oh, okay. Well, I don't have to, I don't have to give away my family. I don't have... And so some of us, maybe here for a moment, you're saying, hey, this, this could be pretty good. What are you saying, David? If he said we don't need to give it away, because after all, we have someone, up and do, someone come up and do the collection, and we teach the kids to come up and give, and they all run and, and give. And wouldn't that be fun if we did that someday, and we all ran down there with our money, and wait till next week. So no, no, not really. So that idea of he didn't call us to give away. Instead, the word is just, the phrase is a little bit different. He said, give up those things. He said, okay, give away, give up. What's the difference? When I give away, I'm in charge. I decide what I'm giving away. I give away money, I'll give, give away a, a bed and a dresser on MCOC attic, whatever. I give, I'm choosing what I'm giving away. This is, not on your, this is not on your notes today. You might want to put it in the side if you are a note taker. When I give up, I surrender. You understand the difference? When I give away, I'm in charge. And I'm just giving it away. I'm deciding where it goes. I can give it all away. And I'm deciding to give it all away. Or I can give away part of it. But when I give up, I am surrendering to Jesus and to his Father everything. I am surrendering my entire bank account to Jesus. What it means is I am signing over. I am giving him my entire bank account. I am giving him my family. I am giving him myself. I am giving him my job. I am giving him everything. It is all yours. And so you say, well, what does that mean? Well, that means now whenever I give, some of that money that belongs to the Lord is what I give, what I put in the plate or, or, or the box, however we do it these days. And some of that is still in my account. But the thing is, now I think about it differently. Before I make a purchase, before I go on a trip, before I buy a new house, a new car, a, a shirt, whatever it is you want to say. I'm now thinking, how do, does that honor God? Is that something God-pleasing? Not just is that something God approves of. Is that something God-pleasing? It is His money that I'm managing or, or I'm using. It is his family. And so in the way I treat my family, there is none of this that part of it's mine and the rest is his. There's none of that. There's not saying, okay, well, I've got some of it. I know I've shared this with you before, but there was this car I used to be behind in Oklahoma all the time. I'm not going to tell you what kind it is because some of you drive it and that's fine. It's not about you. It's about this one car. And it had the vanity license plate. Tithed. 
Well, I know what they were saying. That's a good thing to give 10%, right? But I know what they were saying. They were saying, I've given my 10%. Everybody else buzz off. I've given it because I'm going to use this now for me. No. You can't say, I gave 95%. You can put that on your tag. 95%. I'm living on 5%. That's still not enough. Do you realize that? Because when Jesus says, unless you hate father, mother, and children, and, and brother, sister, your own life, he is saying it is 100% mine. So everything, whether I have put it in the plate or it stays in my account, it's his. It is not mine. So now the way I think with, with my physical blessings that I have and the way I treat people at work or I treat people at home, now it all changes. Because it's his, it's not mine. It's a very different way to look at life. It's just a little nuance, but oh, does it change everything when we see it as surrendering rather than give away. I sign everything over to the Lord. And then there was another passage that was in the Sermon on the Mount that Luke quotes in a little different way. Also in this passage, the very next verse, as a matter of fact, in verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it become salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Do you know what he's saying here? Whoever has ears, that sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? He's saying, everybody hear this. This applies to you. It applies to everyone who can think, is what he's saying here. So, salt is good. We all like salt, right? Or, or to some degree, right? So imagine, if you go to a Mexican restaurant today and they bring the chips and you get out the salt and you salt and I can't taste anything. You'll try some more. I can't taste anything. You know what? You'll just quit putting salt on them, right? You'll say, it doesn't work. What in the world was that for, right? If it does nothing, it is worthless. The purpose of salt has so many purposes it gives flavor to the world so to speak when we talk about the world and what christians are to do it preserves the world it penetrates the world it changes whatever it is that it touches but if it's lost its saltiness it's nothing it's not at all what it was intended to be it's not even good for the manure pile it is worthless so here's my question for us today what am I good for? You remember that phrase? Sometimes my mother used to joke about that. Kid, what are you good for? You know that phrase? You've heard that phrase, right? Well, that good for nothing, so and so, right? You know that. So what am I good for? Because if I am a Christian, then I should be good for impacting this world and making this world a better place. I should be the one that is preserving the good that is here. I should be the one that is penetrating the world and making it better and more like Christ. I should be that if I have my saltiness. But if I have lost my saltiness, God can bring it back to me and make me salty again. Or I'm not at all what he called me to be. So, you say, well, how does that apply, David? Nice sermon. Let's go home, right? In your office tomorrow, are you going to be the salt that is, penetrates and is different and a different flavor than everything else that's there? 
Are you going to be the one that maybe people say, you know what, that guy or that woman, they have such high ethics. That person has such good morals. They're not going to do that. They're not, because of their, they're not going to be like that. Or uh, we're not going to talk about that around them because they're this way. Are you that person? Or is it like we're the person that nobody even realizes because we don't have any saltiness left anymore? We're just like everybody else and everything else that needs trampled and thrown out. Now the beauty is, God calls us home. He said, I will bring, come back to me. Come back to me and I will give you hope. The hope that you lost, you can have it again. And to those of us who are Christians, what he is saying is, I want you to stand up and be a Christian. I want you to be bold. In this, in this audience between our first and second service, I can tell you that there are some people, some things I can talk about and some things I can't talk about, of people who have given up things that are so incredible, it is hard to even imagine and fathom. People who have given up their families, people who have given up their jobs because there were places that didn't, and, and people that didn't glorify God, and they said, we're going to put Jesus first. I want you to have a good paying job. I do, really. But let me, because you can do good things for the church, right? <laughs> but let me tell you this. If your job is not a place where you are being salt and light and it is dragging you away from Jesus. I'm going to humbly ask you right now. I don't have any power. I'm going to humbly ask you right now to quit that job. Quit it. Because it's not bringing you any closer to Jesus than you are right now. Now I would also ask you before you do that. Become salt and light in that place. So you don't have to quit and make a difference in the place it is. But it is not worth your soul. It is not worth hell to have a nice house, a nice car, a nice vacation. It is not worth it. Nothing is worth it. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples, he did not say, come to a comfy church building with nice air conditioning on a Sunday where we can drive in here and not worry about anybody bothering us. That is not what he said. He said, if you want to come and follow me, then you've got to hate everything else compared to me. I've got to be first. I've got to be penetrating through everything you are and what in everything you are and everything you will be and through all your relationships. He said, that's it. Some of you may say, well, David, this is a message that can make people walk away. What do you think happened that day when Jesus said that on that day? He wasn't there just for numbers. I would love everybody to stay and everybody to say, yeah, that's what I'm about. And to say, I got to go tell other people and I've got to bring other people in because there are people who want to be this way. But these are the words of Jesus. Unless we are willing to deny ourselves and carry our cross, he said, you can't be my disciple. Let me remind you again, I am still working on this myself. But I am willing to work on it. I am willing to, be, to try to be better today than I was yesterday. So this morning, if you are ready to be baptized into Christ... We have had several people baptized in the last few weeks. Just this past week, Melissa Ramon, who's been coming here for a long time, was baptized into Jesus. And, and if you're ready to be baptized, this is the day to do it. Every day is the day to do it. But today, you can be baptized, sins washed away, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, be a part of his kingdom, and, and you will be a part of the place where King Jesus reigns and where there is hope eternal, literally. 
And maybe your prayer is one that you need publicly. You can come forward. You can write to us at elders at mcoc.org as well. And that's a great place to, to, to go. Or maybe it's to talk to a friend. And maybe it's not that you need a prayer of forgiveness. Maybe it is. Maybe what you need are prayers for boldness. Prayers to say what needs to be said or not to say what doesn't need to be said or, or what somebody else wants you to say and to be bold. Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. And he's calling us to a higher calling than we have ever known before. Come this morning as we stand and sing.